Welcome to For the Church, a podcast for the flock of Zion Presbyterian Church in Columbia, Tennessee. We want to help you think biblically about everyday matters. Zion Church exists to join Jesus in his mission to reach people with the gospel and then to equip his people to worship and serve. I'm Paul Joyner, the senior pastor, and we are here today with John Kelly. And today we're going to finish our discussion on the conscience. Last week we had talked about the conscience as um, our moral sense or our moral faculty that gives us um, a sense of accusations of sin and excusing us um, where we should be excused. It alerts us to our conformity to an external standard of righteousness. And we had said last episode that like all of our other senses, this moral sense of the conscience has been corrupted by sin and therefore does not always function the way it should. And like every other part of us, when one comes to faith in Christ and is given new birth, the work of regeneration doesn't completely eliminate our corruption, um, but only puts us on a path towards um, a growing conformity to God and His Word. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, when we're talking about the liberty of the conscience or the freedom of the conscience, talks about the freedom of the conscience first um, in this way. The liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, and the curse of the moral law, and then their being delivered from the present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the sting of death, and the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also their free access to God and their yielding obedience to Him, not a slavish fear but a childlike love and willing mind. That, I think, is at the heart um, and what we have to keep at the center of our discussion on the freedom of the Christian or the freedom of the conscience, that our primary freedom is at the cross of Jesus um, and is a freedom from guilt, corruption, condemnation, and a freedom to access uh, the throne of God with boldness and confidence because our sin and guilt has been dealt with once and for all in Christ. But there's another way that we need to talk about the freedom of the conscience, and that is um, the freedom from external requirements that are not in God's Word. Um, the laws and commandments of men is the way the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, defines the second part of the freedom. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it, if matters of faith or worship. One of the ways, John, I think this often shows up in our cultural context in the South um, is in um, a Christian's relationship to alcohol. There are some who would say, um, that a Christian should never drink alcohol, um, that it is a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol, even though the Bible may not say so. Um, this, I think, is an, uh, an application of what the Confession of Faith talks about in the doctrines of commandments of men, and that the Lord um, alone is the Lord of the conscience. Um, I think there are other ways that we can talk about the freedom of the conscience, um, and we will get into those. You might find um, that this episode meanders a little bit, um, and that is just because the complexity of applying the freedom of the conscience um, in today's world, which I think is a feature um, and not a bug. Um, It is by design. Um, The freedom of the conscience is to give us the freedom um, to be flexible um, in a world that is constantly changing and in cultures um, that are constantly changing, that we measure ourselves against God's word in God's Word alone, which gives us a fixed starting point, but also then gives us the freedom to move amongst the differing cultural contexts in which we find in different moral situations in which we find ourselves. Yeah, the, the cultural context part is, um, we have good examples of that, right? I mean, the the head covering issue strike, strikes, it, me at least, is a little odd. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand what that's about. What What is that about? Yeah, so again, I think the Westminster Confession of Faith is helpful here, and it has been helpful for me in thinking through that issue um, because it 
it talks about um, the um, the ecclesial um, the church authorities uh, making decisions for the church based on prudence, and then um, uh, or the light of creation, um, and then it cites. First uh, Corinthians eleven um, as an example of that, and I think what they're saying in that moment is that there's there's something strange going on in that cultural moment in Corinth um, that that requires Paul to say to argue theologically from creation and the angels that in that particular cultural moment a woman needs to be um, covered wear a head covering in the context of worship. Um, and where Paul doesn't require that of any of the other churches, um, what they're saying is in that cultural moment, something Christians need to act in a certain way, that once you get out of that cultural moment, they don't need to act in that way. So it's not normative for every Christian in every age, but a particular cultural moment requires a particular acting um, and a particular action uh, by those who, um, and he doesn't just arrive at that um, um, based on, you know, uh, sort of some flippant um, argumentation, but actually arrives at that conclusion trying to apply God's word to a particular cultural moment and then require certain actions um, that limits them in worship. So in the... In the intro, you you said external standard. I think that's the word, the phrase you used. Um, in kind of thinking about how our conscience can be misapplied um, or or navigated improperly, I think that's that's something I I find in myself is that I'll put the I'll make the external standard culture. What, what, however large or small I want to draw that circle. Maybe it's the people in the store with me, or maybe it's um, uh, just general cultural norms at large. Uh, is that is that how one way it can often misfire, I guess, or we're holding up against that standard? Yeah, you know, I think uh, we had talked about, you know, earlier um, the – so again, I think the alcohol issue in the South is a good one, or depending on your age, um, you know, a Christian shouldn't dance or cannot go to R-rated movies. One time I I drank, danced while I was watching an R-rated movie. <laughs> and, then, and then kissed the girl you were dating. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of kissing, dating goodbye. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, sort of those are the kind of things that the Confession of Faith um you know, jumping off of the Bible, um, Paul's clear teachings in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 um, and 10 um, has in mind um, that um, to require someone not to see an R-rated movie, to say it, it's always a sin for a Christian to see an R-rated movie, um, is to bind the conscience. For the church to say that is to bind the conscience. Um, to speak where God has not spoken, to say that it's probably unwise for a Christian to see an R-rated movie because the rating um, is gotten there because of you know sex um, scenes, then um, that's a different. I think that's in a different category. Um, one is a categorical: you may never, you must not ever. And another is um, that's a binding of the conscience. The other is an influencing or teaching of the conscience. You know, we're going to speak to this. Um, you should abstain from anything that um, incites uh, the desires of the flesh. Therefore, we think it's unwise for you to go see an R-rated movie. Um, that <clears throat> the your conscience needs to make that decision at the end of the day, because where God has not spoken, you know, you are not bound. But where God has spoken, you are bound, and he has spoken to certain things. And one of the things that freedom of the conscience does is allows us to apply um, a, the fixed point of God's external word to an ever-changing climate around us. So, for instance, um, in um, 
I was saying, we were talking earlier and I had said, you know, if, uh, you know, one is free to eat meat, eat beef it is a glorious thing and a good thing. Um, the more beef, the better, unless um, you're sitting at the table with a bunch of Hindus um, who would view the cow as a sacred animal. Um, and to, um, to use your freedom in that context um, would be um, a, a violation of um, the commandment to love a neighbor as yourself. Um, or a misapplication of your freedom. You have the freedom mm-hmm. to eat meat or not eat meat. Um, and in that context, you're free to eat meat. So you could have lunch with Hindus um, and dinner with rednecks. Um, and at lunch, you don't eat meat. And at dinner, you eat a ton of meat. Um, you're free in both situations to apply. Um, it allows us to be fluid and move around different cultures cultures in different contexts because we have one authoritative standard rather than a thousand authoritative standards that's telling us what we should and should not do. We're, we're answerable to the Lord of the conscience who has washed the conscience with the blood of Christ and freed us from condemnation before him. Therefore, he's the good master who can speak and hold the conscience, that, that sense of moral, that moral sense, he can hold it accountable to himself. Um, and not to the cultural standards around us, because the the application of it and the and the cultural cultural standards and that's where it gets messy and difficult to navigate. Is it how simple? I guess for, if we're going to work from sort of simple to complex, how simple is it to think about the conscience being informed by the Word of God? Is that is that in the abstract? Is that a Pretty straightforward deal. Yeah, in the abstract, yes, that's a good way to put it. In the abstract, that's a very straightforward deal. Um, but in the application of it, because the conscience has been corrupted by sin, it is not always right. And that's part of that freedom is I only need to be informed by God's word. But the flip side of that is to admit um, I'm not yet sanctified to the degree I should be. Neither is my conscience, and so it does not always get informed by God's Word. Um, and In our previous episode, we talked about the conscience's goal is to excuse and accuse. And in its corruption, it accuses when it should excuse, and it, sh- and it excuses when it should excuse, or excuses when it should accuse. Um, and so... Say, to say in the abstract that it should always be informed by God's word, and the day to day, what ends up happening is it's not a ver- it's not an infallible guide. So, okay. So, before we get into the more messy stuff, let's just pretend we're going to go away, cabin in the woods, and inform our conscience, and then we're going to rush into the world and apply it, just as a thought exercise, right? So how do we, you, you grimaced when I said that, how do we do How do we do we the exercise of informing our conscience in the abstract? Yeah. Um, I, I think the reason I grimaced is the thought of, of, um, of going out in a cabin in a woods with just my Bible um, and thinking <laughs> that that is an adequate way of informing any part of us, right? It has to be done in context of okay. community, um, that's part of it. You know, we've got to think through these things together. Um, and, um, you know, we have to, uh, because we all have blind spots. I mean, I think, I think a basic starting point of, of gospel community is I could be wrong. Um, and therefore I need you to speak and we have to do this together. Um, and therefore I need to come to the Bible in this context, but also, um, in a constantly changing world, and our world is is becoming much more fluid and is changing at a much quicker space pace than before, which makes the navigate the Christian it makes it more difficult for a Christian to navigate with conscience in a world that's constantly changing. So, a well shaped conscience is a is a function of sanctification of our growth in Christ not a function of more information. So we can't, okay, so we can't, can we separate the exercise of the conscience and the informing and sort of 
curating of the conscience by God's word, mm-hmm. or or is it a? You I think know, it's a it's symbiotic like a, relationship. Okay, so it's like a javelina's teeth. When it opens and closes its mouth, it sharpens it. Yes, yeah, and I, you know, I think um, we had, again we had talked about this earlier um, in a side conversation, but um, throughout church history, conflict brings clarity um, because it exposes all kinds of you know hidden presuppositions that are um, shaping the way we think about things, and so um, the conscience is refined when it enters into a complex situation and then says, um, I don't know what to do right now. So I need to pull back and see how God and his word speaks to this. And then I need to engage that conversation with others. And if the first freedom of the conscience is freedom from guilt and condemnation under God, then I have tremendous freedom to fail. And therefore, my conscience doesn't have to be on defensive all the time. I can take that to the one accuses me. I can take it to the cross. I can live under the finished work of Jesus and then go, I got it wrong this time. Or um, I think I got it right this time, but I don't have to be proud of that because my righteousness is in Christ, not in my application of the conscience. Therefore, I can sit down with others and or have others sit down with me and say, I don't think you should have done that in that situation. I think there's a better way to think about this. Um, and, you know, we kind of that's a good functioning gospel community when we have the ability to speak to each other's consciences from God's Word um, and apply different aspects of it. Um, I think, unfortunately, sometimes what this can feel like is you're making me feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And that's bad. Like, so- no, 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 that's good. If God and His Word is applying and you feel a little bit guilty, guilt is not a terrible thing. It's the it's the absence of relief of guilt that's a terrible thing. So that, I think that's an important distinction. So it's not it's not a proper way to shape one's conscience by because Paul sat down with you and said, John, I think you did this. You shouldn't have done that. And and my conscience is shaped a little bit because Paul. He's going to think poorly of me, right? Right. Unless Paul's pointing me back to the scriptures. Yes. Okay. And that's that's a that is a I think that's a great distinction and a really important distinction because what you just that distinction you just made is what often short circuits mm. the shaping of the conscience because if God is alone as the Lord of the conscience. And he has given us the first freedom of the conscience, which is freedom from guilt and condemnation. Then I don't have to be so concerned with how you think about me as I am concerned um, about how the Lord thinks about me. I need to fear the Lord above all things. And when I fear him, I see the one who has become my father in Christ, who loves me and has freed me from condemnation. Therefore, if John thinks less of me um, because I did the wrong thing, I'm that needs to be part of the equation, but it does not. My conscience does not need to be um, um, imprisoned to your opinion of me, mm. which I think is often part of the rub that causes a lot of frustration when we go to First Corinthians eighteen or First Corinthians eight, um, and that that becomes. Am I bound to your opinion of me? Um, and Paul's reasoning is, no, you're you're bound to Christ. And he has freed you from guilt and condemnation. And that gives you the freedom to lay down your rights um, and let others' conscience um, set the table that you're going to sit at. Quite literally in 1 Corinthians 8, set the table because it's concerned about what you eat. And so he's like, you know, you you regardless of what they think, you know you're free in Christ. But that freedom has been earned by the cross and therefore needs to be shaped in its application by the cross. And so you're free to lay down your rights. You're free to eat meat or not eat meat, food sacrifice, because idol is nothing. It's just nothing. Um, and so, because that's true, this person may disapprove of me, but 
that doesn't need to shape my conscience. What needs to shape my conscience is the is God's assessment of what to do in this situation. His assessment is use your freedom for the sake of others and lay down your right. I think that's a very subtle shift that has to take place. Otherwise, I'm just trying to go around making everyone happy. That's not 1 Corinthians 8. Well, and there's there's the dynamic, though, of one's opinion of, of another, and then there's the dynamic of being being a stumbling block, causing causing your brother to stumble, right? Which are which are different things, are they not? Yes, um, yeah, and I think um, the way I read um, Paul in First Corinthians eight, um, where he says, um, uh, you know, he talks about a weak conscience, which for some people um, they hear that and um, and. Uh, it just carries all these negative over undertones to it, and so it can create some defensiveness. Are you saying that I'm weak? Which, again, in the gospel, the answer is, well, we all are. That shouldn't be a defeating thing for us to hear. But in First Corinthians 8, the weak conscience is one that has not been instructed sufficiently by the gospel and strengthened by the gospel to understand its freedoms, and therefore, to your... Um, so it says, if you're, if uh, this is First uh, Corinthians eight ten, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, and the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And think what Paul has in mind here is someone who um, is still young in the faith, not understanding that they have the, the right to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so, for them to eat food or shifting gears for them to drink alcohol if they if their conscience is telling them it's sin and you employ your boldness and it encourages them to violate their conscience mm. you've sinned against your brother because you have caused them to do something they should not do they may have the freedom to eat meat but they don't have the freedom to violate their conscience and you've sort of encouraged it and i have done this i have sat down you know with with people who think that it's a sin to um, drink alcohol, and I have pushed them mm. um, to violate their conscience instead of instead of teaching them who they are in Christ, the freedoms that they have, and then letting their conscience catch up with those freedoms and thus be strengthened by the gospel. I've just encouraged them to violate the con- their conscience for in, them to partake, for them to partake and drink with me, and they've done so. Um, and that they had the freedom to do that, but they didn't have the freedom to violate their conscience. Um, and I encouraged them to violate their conscience and therefore to sin against their conscience and against God in doing that. The drinking wasn't a sin, but the violating of their conscience was. Um, and therefore, that's Paul's point. I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Not stumbling because they ate meat, but stumbling because they violated their conscience by eating meat. So... And so, what should have been done in in your situation? Just you put it away. Like I you, I put it away and look for an opportunity to talk to them instead of imbibing on alcohol, imbibing mm-hmm. on Christ, and letting and realizing that the problem is not them not drinking alcohol. Their problem is their conscience hasn't been informed enough by the gospel to be strengthened so that they enjoy their freedom. So, what's the? This is Paul's point. What's the greater thing? Using your freedoms or putting down your freedoms and using the opportunity to bring Christ into the, the conscience so that it's better informed. So one of the great aversions that we have as moderners, Westerners, is that W word, the weak word. I know. A weak conscience or a weak brother. Who wants to be in that category? Right? Is there but what's a what's another way to say that? Not not because not to protect our egos, but 
maybe to better give it some shape. Um, I actually, yeah, I actually like, again, I like the week because that should just be baseline. It shouldn't offend any, any Christian. Cause that's the way we start. I'm, I'm weak. I cannot earn a righteousness for myself. I cannot save myself from the indwelling power of sin. I can't save myself from, I'm completely incapable of doing all of these things. So for a Christian, that should not be a word that incites. It should be a word that we identify with, but Perhaps because it is a word that incites in this cultural moment, because we all want to think of ourselves as better than we actually are, um, a thing that my heart is plagued with all of the time. Um, I think maybe a better word or a better way to phrase it is um, an, um, an maybe an insufficiently um, informed conscience. That's mm. what he means by weak. By strong, okay. it's been strengthened by the gospel. By weak, it's not yet grown. So maybe you just think about this, like, would you rather drive across a weak bridge or a strong bridge? Um, and you'd rather drive across a strong bridge. Well, what makes a bridge strong is the supports and structures that undergird it. So weak, a weak conscience has not been fully structured and informed by the gospel, a okay. strong conscience has been, and therefore can bear more weight, the ability to do things that God does not call sin, but your cultural context might have. So a Christian in India who would never have eaten cow before, um, the first thing that you don't want to do when they become a Christian is say, you can eat meat now. <laughs> you can eat cows now. Aren't you so lucky? You're like, oh, we're going to put that down. We're going to get there eventually. But they have to begin to understand the kind of things that they have been freed from by this new relationship with Christ. And eventually that will lead to a conscience that's been strengthened so that they can now eat cows or not eat cows, depending on the moment that they're in. Um, but that's not the first thing that you want to lead out of the gate with. Eating cows. <laughs> eating cows is good. Um, Romans 14. It's only the weak who eat vegetables. <laughs> um, okay, so in, in this business about violating one's conscience, is, you say it's, it's a sin. Is that a, it's always a sin to violate one con, one's conscience? Yes, it's always a sin to violate one conscience because the intention is, um, if the conscience's job is to accuse you before the external court of God, um, if your conscience is telling you God is displeased with this, and therefore you go ahead and do it, your conscience could be misinformed, but your intention at that moment is to do what, what you believe God has told you not to do. And so the step is, don't do it, go back and reason with your conscience. Should I believe this way? Should should you have come to this conclusion? What does God actually say about this? But so in it that, could be totally wrong. You could be totally wrong, but to go against conscience um, is always sin. Never violate your conscience because and it's also unhealthy. Um, apart from being sin, you're actually hardening it, right? You're teaching mm. yourself to ignore it, mm. where you should be teaching yourself to to listen to it. Um, you don't want to defile the conscience. That's Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 8, um, 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Um, he's thought through the idol, eating meat to idols issue, um, and his reasoning is idols are nothing, therefore you can eat the meat because you belong to Jesus, who is everything. Um, but, however, not all possess this knowledge. Right, The conscience has not yet grasp this freedom. They don't understand this. So some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. They're thinking, their conscience is all misinformed about this. And their conscience, when they do, when they being weak is defiled if they eat that meat. So don't, don't defile your conscience by going against it. Um, instead, pull back, inform it, grasp the truth, um, and just don't violate it. What do you think the sources are for um, 
What what are kind of the usual suspects for our conscience being wrong? I mean, is is culture a a primary one? Yes, that the um, kind of what we get from the, the ethos. Yes, I think that is oftentimes um, the primary one, and exactly what was going on both in in Rome and and Corinth, um, and in Jerusalem um, in Acts fifteen. Um, there were certain cultural expectations and certain cultural moments that had told us um, these things are right and these things are wrong. And, you know, again, with alcohol in the South, um, I, re- I remember um, when we, I'm originally from Michigan, we moved to the South when I was in middle school. And there were all these different cultural norms. Um, when I was in school in the North, to say yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am, mm. um, to one of my teachers would have been very condescending. Um, mm. It would have been, it would have, I never would have said that to one of my teachers because it would have been patronizing. And I moved to the South um, and. Wait, how, you can't just move on from that in, from in, here in the South. How is that patronizing? Um, because it, it, uh, it would have been heard as. Um, as a as a false respect, okay, it's, it would not have been heard as I respect the position you're in, and as an adult, and therefore I'm saying yes, ma'am. It would have been heard sarcastically and patronizing. Okay, oh yes, ma'am. And so I moved to the south, and a teacher asked me a question in my first day of school, and I said yes, and she said excuse me, and I said yes. I could tell I had violated some cultural standard <clears throat> because I was learning to navigate a new culture, but I had no idea why she was so upset at me. Um, and I quickly got put in my place that it, the answer is yes, ma'am. Well, you know, if the flip side occurs, and I, you know, I see a lot of people, um, you know, who like to refer to me, you know, they ask, they ask me, how should I refer to you? Pastor Paul or, you know, Reverend Joyner, and I'm like, just Paul. And you can tell that this becomes a conscience issue. They're really wrestling with, mm-hmm. that seems so disrespectful and it seems so informal. Um, and I'm like, okay, well, let's work through that a little bit. Because the cultural standards have been set that you, and it's informed of the conscience that you must treat a pastor in this way, because in the South, that's true. Um, or, um, or you know, you can't drink alcohol, um, and you certainly don't drink alcohol at church functions. Um, but in the North, um, you don't have a church function without a keg. Um, and so a that, keg. A, an entire it just keg. It's like a different level. It's not. <laughs> it is. <laughs> cans of beer. That's no, no. A keg. It's a keg. Um, you're not going to have a church function without a keg. So, the, yeah, so you have a lot of variables, and it's not just, you know, obvious variables that are shaping, you know, cultural expectations. Those are some of them. Um, you, have, um, you have morals that are embedded in the culture um, that tell us certain things are right and certain things are wrong. You have um, worldview-level issues, idea-level issues that arise that shape us more than we realize. And again, I think this is why the idea of going to the woods with your Bible and, and a cabin and figuring all this out is just not how any of us operate. We're meant to operate in community, and certain things in community become, they, they teach us how to live rightly. And the church should function in some ways as an alternative polis, an alternative society that teaches us how to operate differently in the world. And one of those things that it teaches us that the world absolutely does not teach us is that we lay down our rights for the sake of others. Yeah, going to the cabin in the woods for a while. More of a pipe dream. Well, more of a pipe bomb. You usually usually come out of there with the conviction that it's good to go bomb something. Um. Lay down our rights for others. That sounds. That doesn't sound fun. <laughs> well, it it doesn't sound fun in our flesh, um, but 
and again, this is just the function of sanctification. I think the more the your um, the more we are shaped, if the conscience freedom from condemnation and guilt is bought by the blood of Jesus on the cross, then Philippians two comes into play. Have the same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And literally, it's clutched with force. Like I'm not letting go. It's like it's like a three year old who's gotten a candy bar. I ain't letting go of this thing, and you ain't getting it out of my hands. Um, but that three year old grows up to be a father um, and takes one bite of the candy bar, and their kid looks at him and says, "Dad, can I have some?" And you're like, "I'd love to give you some. Um, how about if we split it?" <laughs> um, and then and then they're like, "But how about if I take three quarters of it?" And you're like, "Well." I'd really like half. I'd really like the whole thing, but I love you, so I'm willing to give you three quarters of it. And I'll take less. Um, I think that's the progression of the employment of the freedom of our um, our our conscience. Um, our the freedom of the conscience is designed to give us flexibility, so we're not rigidly held to every external standard, but only to the Word of God. And that's a fixed point that speaks a lot into our lives. And one of the things that it speaks into is it should give us flexibility um, in, in gospel community. It's Romans 14. Your opinions are important. Don't not have opinions. Just demote them and keep the gospel center so that some people can think that eating meat is okay and some people think that eating vegetable, only vegetables, some day people esteem some days over and above others. Um, some days, some people esteem all days the same. That's okay. You can have that kind of flexibility, but also flexibility in mission um, so that, um, you know, um, Paul, um, who argues extensively um, in Colossians 2 and almost the entirety of Galatians, that circumcision is no longer to be in, um, practiced um and has absolutely no merit and has been replaced by baptism and no one uses it as a cultural marker, then has Timothy circumcised for the sake of mission. So he's like, you don't have to do this. You're free not to do it, but you're also free to do it. And if it helps the gospel move forward, lay down your freedom for the sake of others. Um, And so there's flexibility in missions. So again, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, look, um, I will become all things to all men for the sake. So by any means possible, I might win some. And that, that doesn't mean, it means his theology is fixed, but um, there's a lot of flexibility. So in one hand, he holds theology tightly, God's word tightly. In his other hand, he holds methodology a little more loosely um, and so can flex in different circumstances. And I think that's Part of his thinking is this is the way the conscience has been freed. It's been freed to enter into a variety of different contexts and say that maybe isn't as important as um, as a cultural standard so I can flex around it. Uh, Calvin says it this way. He says, um, however, uh, he's talking about Romans 14, 13 and the freedom of the conscience. He says, However necessary abstinence may be in respect of a brother as prescribed by the Lord, um, and he means abstinence from something, not just sexual abstinence, but just abstaining from things, um, conscience ceases not to retain its liberty. That doesn't, you know, that's not what conscience tries to do. It tries to say, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free. It, it doesn't do that. Um, and says, we see how the law, while binding the external work, leaves the conscience free. So it binds the external work to the person sitting across from me, but leaves my conscience free to flex so that I can say, what matters to you? That's what we're going to do today. So the strength isn't, the strength isn't diminished because it's not exercised. Uh, the strong conscience embraces its freedom to exercise itself um, towards the other person. That's where it gets shaped like the cross. It's earned by the cross and gets shaped by the cross. And so, again, Philippians 2, lay down rights for the sake of others. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus laid down his rights, took on our flesh, bore our guilt and shame so that we could become children of God. 
Therefore, if I have freedom as God's child, I lay down. I'm, I'm, I utilize those rights in a cross-shaped way to say, what, what matters to this person sitting across from me? If God has not said it's sin, then I can flex around this. I may even have an opinion on it. I may even have a strong opinion on it, but I'm not going to raise my strong opinion to the place of inflexibility. Mm. That's Romans 14. You can have opinions on these things. In fact, you should, because God's Word speaks to all of life. But don't let those things raise to the level um, that we are inflexible with each other. And that's how we can... That's how we can have fellowship with each other, yes. where we have these um, differences. And they may be very deep. Yes, whether that's emotionally deep or um, philosophically, philosophically, politically. Yeah. And so, if we're all coming toward each other and have the other person's interest in mind and their conscience in mind, then. Then we can have fellowship. Yes, that's right. And again, I think the brilliance of otherwise we we kind of retreat into our camps. Yes, which is very. We all retreat to our woods, um, our cabin in the woods, um, get in our own echo chambers, and and raise what I would call level two or three or you know four level issues to level one issues issues that we divide over. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, that's exactly, you know, we, we hear each other instead of, um, we hear the people in our own camp rather than listening to those outside of our camp. So, you know what, I, I really have freedom on this issue, um, because my one, my justification doesn't rise or fall on this, rise or fall on the imputed righteousness of Christ. It's been credited to me received by faith alone. I can't be more righteous than I am today or less righteous than I am today. So if I get this wrong, I get it wrong. What and is, if I get it right, then I get it right. But if I have it right, I need to be it to be employed in a loving way, lest I have all knowledge and I'm just a sounding gong and a clinging symbol. But I've not employed it in the shape of the cross, my knowledge in the shape of the cross. So even if I get it right, I need to kind of come down to where somebody else is and try to move them to where um, they need to be. And again, I don't do that well. Um, that's... I think that's the model of the cross, um, the application of that, or the my own application of that at times is not always worked out very well. It's very difficult to get there. So one of the one of the benefits of the sort of dogmatism or authoritarianism that that we may be in culturally at times, whether that's in the broader culture or in a you know smaller context is that it gives structure and it gives it gives us something to navigate by if we have a certain moral code for instance and our culture um, has this moral code it, it it leaves one vulnerable I think uh, later when that structure is removed or you're, you're in a place where you don't have it um, there's there's a weakness there where we haven't been able, haven't had to navigate these issues and, and build up those muscles, yeah. right? Of um, of really paying attention to our conscience. So once we're kind of outside of that protective structure and framework, and we're exposed, and we're having to to maybe maybe come to an understanding of what our liberties are, where where are the pitfalls there? Because it seems to me we, we can slip into the lawlessness mm-hmm. end of things mm-hmm. or just find another structure, another set of legalistic um, do's and don'ts, mm-hmm. and we feel like we're kind of a crawfish going from one rock to another, right? We don't want to be out here and exposed. we got to find something to run up under. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking earlier when we were talking that, you know, um, <clears throat> this – you know, sort of requires um, growth and grace um, for, you know, the conscience, like every other faculty, needs to grow and be shaped by Christ and the word that comes from Christ. And, and one of the dangers is that you separate those things, right? So when you separate 
the word from the Jesus who speaks it, it's easy to get into legalism, right? Um, but if you separate, but the other flip side is it's easy to get into lawlessness if you separate the word from the Jesus who speaks it. You know, you're really separating the offices of Jesus at that point. You, you're like, I like him as priest, but I don't want him as prophet, as king. I like him as one who offers up his blood and gives me the freedom, but I don't want him as as king who informs me and prophet who speaks to me. Um, and there's one Christ who does, who both justifies and sanctifies his people, who both makes us right to, with God and then deals with indwelling sin. And so the conscience needs to be informed by God's word, which means we really are on a path to it being informed or back to 1 Corinthians 8, strengthened, so that it functions better. It's more redeemed um, in its application, and it accuses us better, um, and it excuses us um, at times, and when accusations come, you're like, "Well, I don't, I don't think that's that's true." And here's the reasons why I don't think that's true. Um, and where it is true, I can just quickly repent and, and not to be defensive. And that strengthens those that dynamics of quick repentance strengthens and sharpens the conscience. That's part of it. Um, so it's being informed by the gospel at that point, but also being informed by God's word. So this does require some some study, like a, the conscience that is not being informed by God's word will never get strengthened and sharpened. Um, and But when it does, it is holding good theology in one hand, which enables us to be flexible in others. You're not a, you don't have to go looking for the new law, which is what cults actually appeal to right they give a rich firm structure and then i can check boxes and say i'm okay i'm okay i've done these things i've done these things but if the gospel says you're okay before god his requirements are much higher they've all been met in christ and that righteousness is now yours then you don't need a firm set of check boxes because you get some things wrong, you get them wrong. If you get them right, it's only by God's grace that you got them right. Um, but you don't need firm external structures all the time because you have the firm point of Jesus speaking through his word, informing the conscience and telling us how we are to operate. And that same Jesus also gives tells us how to shape the freedom of our conscience so that it begins to look like I'm laying down my rights for the sake of others. So what do you do, at, just in a, at a pastoral level or a congregational level, what do you do when consciences are um, accusing and excusing in various ways? It, so it's beyond just having a dilemma. One says this and one says that. But you have... Nuances all up and down. Yeah. Well, what happens when you have 250, 300 consciences? Yeah. Um, I think that's, you know, I think um, this works really well. And most of the way the Bible speaks about this, uh, the freedom of the conscience or the application of one's freedom in Christ, most of the ways it speaks about that is at the interpersonal level, right? And so most of it is talking about either living in community with other Christians with whom their conscience are a little bit different or at the level of mission, carrying out the mission of Jesus in the world. An example of what do you do when you have 3,000 different consciences that are being culturally shaped um, is the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You have, you have Gentiles and Jews whose consciences have been shaped by the worlds that they grew up in, who are very different and have very different cultural norms. And they're trying to figure out, how do you make this work? And one of the issues was food sacrificed idols. And Paul brings his typical theology that he brings in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10 to the table. And then the church sends down a requirement in the form of a circular letter that's taken to the various churches, some of them by Paul, um, who require them not to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so part of navigating this on a, 
a larger level is that you don't bow down to 3,000 individual consciences, but at some point you've got to make some compromises um, for the sake of unity and instructing. Like, just don't eat food sacrificed to idols, which is an application of the freedom of the conscience. You're free not to eat food sacrificed to idols, so just use that freedom in this way. You're free to eat food sacrificed to an idol. Just in this cultural moment, we're telling you how to use your freedom in this way. You're free not to eat and to eat. We're instructing you how to use this freedom for this cultural moment. The expectation is, I think, as the church matured and began to be better informed by the gospel, that requirement was probably lifted because of Paul's later argument in different cultural settings um, is um, is to say, just you can eat food sacrificed to idols. He's not going against the Jerusalem Council. I think uh, what he's doing is the cultural moment has shifted, and so he's applying the fixed theology to a different cultural moment um, and coming to a different conclusion. So can we talk about the elephant in the room? There's this, um, Alabama football? Huh? Alabama football. That elephant? No, I don't. I don't get your... I don't get your football references. I don't know what I'm sure to some people that was that had a lot of meaning. I have no idea what you mean. <laughs> Is it college football season? Uh not anymore. Okay. And it and for Tennessee it's never college football season. There's only season. one sport anyway. Fly fishing. Two sports. <laughs> okay. Um masks. Masks, yes. So uh, obviously, we have so we have conscious issue, conscience issues um, at play here, rightly so, right? Um, so the principles that we've talked about so far of of being concerned for your brother, um, not wanting him to violate his, not not uh, encouraging him to violate his conscience, right? Uh, but we have we have conflict and we have the dynamics of a larger body, multiple kind of convictions there with respect to conscience. So how how is that navigated and this is this is for the church. This is about Zion Presbyterian Church. So we can we can zone in um, more specifically here. So how do we navigate that? Um, <clears throat> in, in what context? In just everyday life? So, okay. So I'll, be, I'll give you a very specific context. So coming to worship at Zion and wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. Um. What do you, what is your, I guess, pastoral, from a pastoral perspective, with respect to that individual's conscience, and then with respect to, uh, let's say, the, the regulations that we've set? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is the way we've thought about it. We've thought about it through the lens of um, 1 Corinthians 11, um, and you know, again, cultural moment, Paul says, let's think about this theologically and put a piece of fabric on your body. Um, which it doesn't get mandated at other times, which means it does seem to be a particular cultural moment and in the context of worship. So that seems to be... And to be clear, you're talking about the, the head, head coverings. coverings from, yeah. That's the cloth. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, just move it down a little bit. Um, or Acts 15, where they do require um, something. So I don't think that's a violation of the conscience. Um, we're saying, you know, in this context with the information that we have at our disposal, um, and we could be wrong about this, and this could change. Um, and if that's the case, you know, we'll change application. Um, but in this context, with the information that we have, this seems to be the most prudent way to govern this hour of our lives. And we've been very careful to not say um, a Christian must wear a mask at all times and in all places. Mm. Um, we've 
we've been very careful to say, look, these these are the things that we're thinking through. The mask is like a parapet on the roof. Um, to uh, it is a it is which is you know in, in ancient Israel put um, a fence up on your roof so someone doesn't fall off because you are partly responsible for another person's lives. That's the shared responsibility that we have because we're creating the image of God. We share responsibility for each other. If if your ox gores somebody and they're prone, you know that ox is being prone to goring people, you've got to protect other people from that ox. Um, and so in this cultural moment, we're going to try to apply that um, because we know that Large gatherings are particularly susceptible to spread of the coronavirus. So we've moved over to the gym because it's got a lot more air volume and we can all be in worship together um, as one body. Um, but because of that, you know, we want to try to um, to use prudence and um, wear a mask into the building, out of the building, and while we sing. You know, it's it's literally for about 20 minutes. We're not telling you, we're not telling you to put it on the whole time. Um, and we're not telling you you have to wear a mask all times and all places if you're going to follow Jesus. Um, but because we have been given oversight over worship by the Lord Jesus, um, and we think this is prudent at this point, um, then let's do this together. And here are some principles that we're trying to employ to come to that conclusion, because we do think that the Bible teaches that we do have responsibility for each other's health and welfare. Um, okay. So this seems to be an easy, low ask. And if the conscience is free, where the Bible has not spoken clearly, it's free to put on a mask or not put on a mask. And so we, in this in this particular moment for this particular time, we're asking you to do it. And and that changed. You know, we weren't requiring it until our numbers spiked in, in November and our hospital started getting overloaded and the spread rate was higher than it's ever been in our community. We kind of flexed and changed and said, okay, now that, now that some things have changed, we're going to change our practice too and go from um, – suggesting it to requiring it um but we also understand that not everybody might be on the same page and we're not mm -hmm. saying that you know everyone has to be on the same page but we are saying that we someone has to make some decisions on this and we think this is the prudent decision to make because the wise men um imprudent flees from danger so is 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 a mask issue um framed as a conscience issue Rightly, I, I think I don't think the way it is framed as a conscience issue um, is the way the Bible speaks about conscience. Because I think the way it's framed is, um, you shouldn't tell me what to do, or you don't have a right to tell me what to do if the Bible doesn't speak to it. And I think that's partly right. Again, we've not we've been really careful not to say you have to wear a mask if you're a Christian. At all mm -hmm. times and all places. Um, we have been careful to say, look, here are some biblical principles that speak into this situation, and you should be informed by those things, and your conscience needs to take these things into consideration as it's using its freedom to make decisions in this world. And we've not said, you know, if, if you're a Christian, you have to wear masks in worship wherever you go. We've simply said... The Lord Jesus has made us overseers of the church. There are examples where the overseers have to make decisions for the sake of prudence in a particular cultural moment. And so we're going to do that in this case. This cultural moment will change and we're going to rise out of it. And, you know, we're not going to wear masks anymore. Or we might even get back to the place where the numbers change to such a degree or we get new data or new science and. We just say, you know what? That missed, that that maybe was the wrong decision to make. We've got better understanding, so we're going to make a new decision. Or everything has changed, and we're going to make a new decision in light of that. But we're going to take our you know fixed biblical principles and, and attempt to apply them to an ever changing world and ever changing circumstances. So one of the, um, uh, I guess the last thing on. On, on the mask if if one is convinced 
that it would be sinful for them to wear a mask to worship. Okay, we have we have the requirement from the from the church, and one is is convinced that that it's sinful. What what should they do? We have we've had those conversations, and we've just lovingly said or attempted to be lovingly, maybe not always received as love, attempted to say, don't violate your conscience. We don't want you to do that. That is not a healthy and good thing to do. So until we feel like we can lift this requirement, um, then find a place that you can worship. Worship Jesus in the context of corporate worship and um, worship him there and then once we are able to lift that, please, you know, come back. This is your church home, but this is our loving pastoral advice for how to navigate these very complex waters in this minute. But also, let's not raise this to a level one issue that we, you know, um, divide over. We don't think this is a, I don't think this is a, an issue to divide over. But when it comes down to practice, you do have to kind of pract- maybe practice things differently for a moment until things change. Um, and so, and I've even, you know, um, had people who have visited other churches in town, and I've I've reached out to those pastors and said, "Man, please welcome these people. I want them in good gospel preaching churches. Mm. Um, please welcome them. Um, don't you know? Don't engage this discussion with them. They just need a safe place to land for a bit, um, and hopefully, we can get back to normal and and everything will settle back down. But you know, this is you know, love them as a brother, embrace them um, as a fellow." sinner in need of grace and and let them land there for a while please just don't make this an issue with them because i don't think it's an issue i don't think it should be raised up to that level and if that's the case then don't go someplace else and make them make it an issue um we've we've really tried not to make it an issue as hard as that is when you're making decisions but we've really tried to say look we we're okay with you disagreeing with us. It's a healthy thing. We don't always have to come to the same conclusions, but the Lord Jesus has entrusted um, some things to us, and we have to make decisions. Um, and so these are the decisions that we make, are, are going to make right now, and you're okay. We're, we believe you have the freedom to disagree with us. We also believe you have the freedom to put a mask on. Um, and so put a mask on for 20 minutes. Um and so well um so let's bring it back up then benedictus <laughs> benedictus that is a that is a good word um i think um i don't know how to benedict out of that <laughs> that that was the uh Again, the elephant in the room, it's hard to jump off that elephant because it's been such a um, a hot-button issue uh, for us. But I think, I think maybe the way to, to benedict that is that the church does not think that um, we, we certainly have room for disagreement on this issue. You know, we've, we, we aren't looking... Um, in judgment and condemnation on those who disagree with us on these issues because we don't think it's a level one or even a level two issue. It's the kind of things um, that Paul speaks to in Romans 14. And so we should, we are, we're just welcome the disagreement and aren't looking at anybody who's disagreed with us over this issue and thought, uh, we're glad they're gone or they can't come back. Or if they do come back, we're going to be sad. Um, we're, we're probably more saddened. By I personally am more saddened by um, just the 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 weight, the angst, the emotions that have been associated with this issue over people that I deeply love, care for, um, and you know, kind of want to see um, around um, and miss deeply um, when this has become such a hard issue for them. Um, I've told some of them, and some days you you need to know that. Um, when I don't see you out there on Sunday, um, it is, it's just deeply saddened for me. And there are some days when I just have to drag myself into the pulpit, um, because I, there are people that I really, really miss, um, who aren't there over this issue. Um, so not only is there room for disagreement on the issue of masks, 
but um, also room for our consciences to be right, wrong, and still love each other so deeply that um, some of the people who have had such a hard time are people that I deeply grieve um, and miss um, on a Sunday morning. So, so our homework, the interpersonal um, navigating conscience um, is what? Is grace? <laughs> the grace gospel. and understanding. Yes, yes. The gospel is sufficient for all things. And, uh, and I think as I said, <clears throat> when we were... I say it often, we've got to fight to keep the gospel center. Um, and there are multiple things that are always going to try to take that center away from us. Um, but the gospel has to stay center, and then it has to inform everything that we think about. It can never l- leave the equation of what we're thought- thinking through. And it gives us the ability to fail, to wrong each other, and to forgive, um, to disagree uh, with each other, but there really are enough resources in the gospel for whatever that we're, we find ourselves dealing with. Um, and so let's keep it center. Um, and even in this conversation, there's no freedom without the conscience. There's no freedom of the conscience without the gospel. Um, and therefore the gospel has to shape the application of that freedom, um, in all of life. So, well, um, you've been listening to For the Church, a conversation with Paul Joyner and John Kelly. If you have ideas for future episodes, please send us an email or message. You can find out more about Zion Church at www.zioncolumbia.org. And please visit us on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m.